You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamou, a gerontologist, digital nomad, certified sports nutrition, and breathing coach. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook, Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming energy reboot program for women over 50. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would really appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find us too. This is a really small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women, help us grow stronger, get our voice out there, and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. This episode is sponsored by Oxford HealthSpan, the creators of my favorite supplement, Primadine. I admit it, I am a total supplement junkie, but if I had to choose only one, it would be this one. And it's because Primadine is spermidine, and this is shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. Now, this is a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. So as we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and waste, which isn't good for our cells, our health, nor our longevity. So we need to clean it up. And if you want the research on this, go to OxfordHealthSpan.com and you can see all of it, showing how spermidine supports our brain, our hormones, and our heart health. And another great side effect is stronger hair, skin, and nails, but also longer eyelashes. But, you know, the real important reason why I love Primadine is because I have never, ever received as much feedback on a product I recommended as I have with Primadine. Literally every week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And... Most of the time, it's about improved sleep. And even some of you told me it's reversed a bit of your gray hair too. So I find that totally amazing. So I can honestly say with 100% certainty that Primadine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on OxfordHealthSpan.com. Just be sure to get back to me with your results too. Now enjoy the show. You can now watch all of our podcast interviews on the Hack My Age YouTube channel. Some of our guests bring slideshows, so it's really great to have. Every week there is a new video, so just search Hack My Age on YouTube.com or find the link on the Hack My Age website. Before we start the show, I am so excited to announce that we are having another group menopause class starting October 1st. This one is all about optimizing our energy. So if you're feeling tired all the time and, and want to learn how to hack it, then this program is for you. Now you can join me and 20 other fabulous women from around the world to go through the four week program together. And we get to meet live on Zoom every week to keep you accountable and answer your questions. And if you grab a spot now, you can get a discount of 30% with the code EARLYBIRD on the hackmyage.com website where you're going to find the Menopause Energy Reboot Program. But if you have to hurry because the offer is good only until September 12th. 
So the women who already went through the program not only got more energy, but as a byproduct, they got more muscle and strength. They burned more fat. They sleep way better. They feel more in control and they learned what to expect in this menopause transition and how to hack their way out of it. But if you cannot wait, then you can also follow the program alone without my guidance and go at your own pace. And the program is also on the hackmyage.com website. And if you got questions, just shoot me a message on the site and I'll have links to all the programs in the show notes. So now let's get started with the show. So we are going to have a supercharged podcast today with someone I'm really excited to host on the show. Dr. Stephanie Estima. And she's been in my life for the last several years after one of my clients shared her content with me. She kept screenshotting pages from her book, The Betty Body, showing me someone who was writing the same things that I was coaching her on. And it was confirmation that Dr. Stephanie and I were in total alignment and she just had to be one of my guests one day. Dr. Stephanie is the founder of Hello Betty. And this is a community centered around female empowerment through health and business coaching. And she's a doctor of chiropractic with a special interest in metabolism, body composition, functional neurology, and that means brain health, and female physiology. She is the host of The Better Podcast with Dr. Stephanie, which is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And she's got a great sense of humor, and she seems to guess ahead all of my questions, and she can break down the science in terms we can all understand and actually remember. And she has pretty amazing guests that are some of the world's leading voices on health and wellness. Dr. Stephanie is the creator of a very female-centric ketogenic protocol called the Estima Diet, which helps women regulate their hormones and burn fat and get off their meds during the menopause transition. Now, I mentioned her book, The Betty Body, which is the one that my client was in love with that helps women jumpstart their metabolism, revive their libidos, rest guilt-free, I love that one, and elevate their emotional well-being. And this is something we all need in our menopause years and exactly what we're going to dive into today for you. She also has a great series of online programs to take your learning to the next level. And I will have links to all of them in the show notes from her website, hellobetty.club. Now, ever since I found her, Dr. Stephanie's been going from strength to strength, trailblazing her way through the health world making a solid name for herself and her empowering work. And she's been featured on the on Thrive Global, the Huffington, the Huffington, po- Huffington Post, and has over three and a half million article reads on medium.com. And she's pretty popular, guys. So listen up. <laughs> now, without further ado, let's meet Dr. Stephanie. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You know so much about women's health. Um, my question is why why did you go into chiropractic medicine and not OBGYN or women's medicine? Like what made you shift into that world of women's health? It's a good question. I would say that my whole life I've been, uh, we'll say kinesthetically oriented, uh, very much a movement uh, freak. So love everything to do with biomechanics and flexibility and proprioception and the integration of that uh, with brain health. My undergrad is in neuroscience and psychology. So I was studying at the University of Toronto and that's those were the subjects that I was most drawn to. 
And chiropractic was a natural extension of those studies. And I didn't actually really know what chiropractic was, to be honest. I thought it was like sort of like physio physical therapy um, until I had a friend who was in, um, she was in a car accident and I was taking her to her appointments and she was seeing a chiropractor and I had the opportunity to speak to him and he was able to impart to me what the chiropractic philosophy for a healthcare model looks like. And this has been from the beginning and chiropractors have looked at the physical causes of disease, the chemical causes of disease and the psycho-emotional causes of disease. And that really spoke to me as a philosophical premise in terms of health promotion, not just symptom management. And of course, I say this with love because I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are medical doctors, OBGYNs, you know, et cetera. But when we sort of parse apart the philosophical approach to care in a more allopathic model, it is more symptom management. It's like, well, you have a deficiency in Prozac, that's why you're depressed, or you have a, you know, you haven't had enough surgeries on your labrum or whatever, that's why you can't move your shoulder appropriately. And I think that, um, and certainly I'm not saying that we never need medication or we never need surgeries, of course we do, but the primary, at least in my opinion, the primary way that we have health promotion or what might be called salutogenesis is coming back to these original principles of the physical, chemical, and spiritual and emotional uh, good, good stressors and bad stressors. Like it's either you're going to be augmenting and amplifying your health or you're going to be damp dampening it. And so that's, you know, chiropractic was just a natural, natural extension of uh, my love of brain, everything brain, everything neurology, everything neuroscience, and um, you know, paid my way through chiropractic school as a as a fitness instructor. That's how I paid my bills. That's how I bought my books and bought my courses. And it's just always been about movement for me. Movement is just the natural human design, and it makes sense to study um, movement as a or it made sense, and it still makes sense for me to be studying movement as a as a medium for health and healing. So definitely, and you're using this as well. I can hear it in in your podcast and how that side of you is is coming out and your your interest in fitness and able to guide women as well on how to move and and exercise and that's super important. And then how did you why this such sudden interest in women and women's health and how did you make that shift? Yeah, I have to be honest. I think I really wasn't interested in it for quite a long time, and I think part of that is a function of schooling. So yes, we all learned the menstrual cycle in school and there was some, you know, advanced menstrual cycle uh, classes that I, that I took, but there wasn't the deep dive that I have now sort of gone on through reading of literature and playing around. My education really came like many uh, clinicians worth their salt. They'll say, you know, like the, the degree is sort of the ticket into the race and you actually, what you actually start learning is once you get into practice, because your, your patients are your biggest educators. And so I would notice, although, uh, you know, in retrospect, at the time, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to it. There were certain women who would request different therapy modalities if they were coming in to see me for, let's say, headaches or low back pain or whatever it might be. Over the course of their cycle, they would come in and request gentler techniques, gentler modalities, or they would come in and say, you know what, doc, today, I just can't have you adjust me the way that you did last week. Uh, and so I didn't pay much attention to it until and it was sort of always there. Now, of course, hindsight is always 2020. You're like, oh God, like they, these ladies have been telling this to me for years. I just didn't, I wasn't able, I didn't have the clinical 
wherewithal to sort of pull that pattern out. And it was, it wasn't really until I myself had hit sort of a, in my personal life and in my professional life, these two coinciding big uh, events that happened at the same time, I was going through, uh, unfortunately, a divorce with uh, young children. So this is anyone who's ever been through a divorce or a big breakup, uh, you know, that there's a lot of sadness there. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. There's all colors of the all emotional, like the entire emotional spectrum you're usually oscillating through in a day. And then coinciding with that, I had a huge fire in the clinic where the clinic actually burnt down. There was an electrical malfunction. One of the massage therapists, you know, put in some towels at the end of her shift and then over overnight something happened and the, basically the, in the morning like over we had a call at i can't remember what time it was now like maybe 12 at night 11 o'clock at night that the clinic was gone and oh. so i had to i know so i had to find like thanks thanks universe that's super super great super great timing <laughs> on those two things so i had to i had to find a place to temporarily serve my patients and then i had to find a new space and renovate it and make it operable as a clinic uh, and I took the opportunity at the time to really create the clinic of my dreams. So there was a rehab center, there was uh, gym equipment in there, there was an adjusting adjusting area, there were closed doors, open door, all the things like closed door adjusting, like private rooms, and then sort of open uh, open area um, adjusting as well. And so all of those things together, as you might deduce, my own menstrual cycle was it just felt like I was being attacked by gremlins every you know <laughs> felt like my womb my womb was exploding during my my bleed week i leading up to bleed week um very inflamed very tender water retention emotional sleep disturbances mood disturbances all the things and so i was trying to myself find a way to find coming back to balance finding that homeostasis again after a change in allostatic load, after a change in all of these stressors. So now I'm going through a divorce. I have very young children. So we're trying to navigate and protect them. And, you know, the divorce as, you know, I'm, I'm not Gwyneth Paltrow yet. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, con <laughs> it wasn't a conscious uncoupling. We weren't going for drinks and, you know, it wasn't that. I think we're there now. I think we've, we've really done both of us. I'm very proud of our co-parenting now and, and how we've come together. But at the time, not so much. And yeah, it was, it was, it was difficult. And so I was trying to find a way back to myself. And then it was only in those, in that darkness, we'll say that I was able to see some of the other women in my practice also struggling with the same things. And so I was at the time started modifying care for uh, just intuitively modifying the way that we were adjusting based on the menstrual cycle for my women. And we were also running nutrition programs at the time. So kind of back to that chiropractic philosophy, there's physical stress, like distress, eustress, chemical stress, you know, eustress, distress. So we were running a ketogenic style program in the clinic. And again, noticing, starting to notice a pattern with men and women. So men did really well on the program, lost tons of weight. It was very easy for them to maintain over the long term. And my beautiful women were just really discouraged. Like they could maybe do it for a month, sometimes two months, but the results were not as profound. You know, my men were losing 10 pounds, 20 pounds, you know, sometimes, you know, in excess of that, I, you know, after a month and my women were dropping one pound, <laughs> three pounds. And so it was very, um, it was very much highlighted in couples, you know, husband and wife couples that were doing the program together because they're in the same environment. They're eating the same foods, maybe slightly different portion sizes, but absolutely different outcomes. 
So that was really the birth of the Estima, you know, that female centric ketogenic style diet that we now call the Estima diet. It was based on that. And then I think my curiosity will say, and now what is primarily my work into women's health is because of my own story, how no one was able to give me any, any explanation for what was happening. Um, my own self-experimentation and the experimentation and the sort of clinical, we'll call it, um, experience that I was seeing with some of my female patients uh, versus, you know, my male patients that I was caring for. So yeah, that that's how I've become interested in in health. And I still have that same sort of premise to healing that there are levers that we can all pull. I'm sure we'll get into a lot of them today, nutrition and exercise and stress management that is very important throughout the arc of a woman's life. But in particular, when we get into perimenopause and menopause, this is when it is really highlighted for us that we have to let go of the things that maybe at some point in our life was useful for us, a strategy, behavioral strategy, a stress response, a behavior um, that we were engaging in that no longer serves us for where we are in our life. So acceptance for where we are, a hope for where we're going, and then being able to nuance and modify how we eat, how we live, you know, based on uh, if you're still cycling, based on your menstrual cycle, and if your cycle is becoming erratic or you're in menopause, how to change the way that you're that you're adopting some of these strategies to that that time of your life as well. How progressive this clinic that you had, because to be able to work with people on their diet and and uh, and and manage their help them manage all the different factors in their life. And when I go to a chiropractor, I haven't go very often, but I, when I've been to one, there was no talk about that. Um, so I, I think anyone who's even gone through your clinic is quite lucky to have met you and and have this. And and now I can s- totally see, yeah, how your your transition to women's health and how you took this deep dive, uh, the the reason that you happen, happened. So thank you for explaining that, and it makes perfect sense. You you really helped like thousands of women reclaim their bodies, their minds, and and their lives back through your protocols and your books and and your podcast and and the podcast itself is really female centric and and it's got really fabulous information for a woman going through really any stage of her life. But you do cover a lot in the perimenopause experience, which I think you may be entering yourself at forty five. I think and and there's probably no one better prepared than you right now, and and probably your husband. We're, we're going to cover a lot here today for the women going through menopause, but I think the one that is most disturbing that I hear uh, and surprising is this unexplained weight gain. Like nothing's changed in the diet or exercise, yet some women suddenly find themselves less comfortable in their own bodies. And, and what I've seen some of my clients do is just go back to what worked for them in the past, like eat less and exercise more, and, and that's just not working anymore. And so let's talk about these metabolic and physiological changes, like really what's going on here in this period of life. Yeah, I think that for many uh, women, and I would say women now going through menopause, we do have to really be aware of some of the messaging, let's say, that we have been exposed to, you know, in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s around what it means to be healthy and how we um, think about food. So I remember uh, growing up and I'm I'm for, I'm 45, as you said, so um, maybe I'm dating myself here, but that high carbohydrate, low fat kind of craze, I remember kind of in the 
you know, in the eighties and, you know, nineties where I would see my mom and I would do the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. you sort of follow your, you know, your female, uh, you know, um, uh, examples like counting out her almonds and her <laughs> grapes. Right. So she would count out like 12 grapes or whatever. And like, you know, two or three almonds. I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's like the snack that I'll have as well. Of course, my face was in the fridge like 45 minutes later, or I was like very, very hungry. <laughs> that wasn't satisfying in any way. So I think that for a woman in her forties right now in, you know, the, you know, 2023 and the, you know, in the 2020s, we'll call it, we have to also be very mindful of some of the messaging that we've been exposed to and the conditioning that we've had around food. So often when I talk to women about consuming higher fat, uh, maybe pulling back on the carbohydrates, the first thing is like, what isn't that if I have fat, aren't I going to gain fat? Like, isn't that, isn't that, you know, it's sort of backwards speak to some of the initial um, uh, messaging and programming maybe that we've been um, exposed to. So I would say that one of the things that I think is very important for a woman in perimenopause to be considering from a nutritional perspective or from a, well, we'll say from a metabolic and physiological perspective is that women, irrespective of age, are probably going to have a higher level of leptin resistance compared to their male counterparts. And what I mean by that, so leptin is a metabolic hormone. It's secreted from the adipocyte, so from our fat cells. And it basically tells us, put the fork down. We've had enough, girl. You know, like <laughs> meal's done. It's, it's time to put the fork down. So leptin is what we call a satiety hormone. It makes us feel full. For women, it seems like the research seems to indicate, and I would say that this is backed up by what a lot of women have told me in clinical practice, is that it takes them longer to reach that point of feeling full uh, compared to their male counterparts. So one of the things I'll often say uh, to a woman when we're first starting to work out, you know, work together before we even change anything before I, it's like, you just eat what you want to eat, eat whatever you want for the next week. But I'm going to ask you to just stop when you're 80% full. And most women have no clue what that means. None. Like they have a very hard time understanding when they're full. And part of the reasoning for that is that signaling is a bit delayed, right? So it's delayed and it's, a, it's delayed in everyone, not just like men don't eat and instantly they're full. It's not, uh, it's not that stark of a contrast, but the signaling up to the brain, there is a lag time, right? There's a lag time, 10 to 20 minutes in, in most cases, but for women, it does seem that that lag time is prolonged. So that signaling from the adipocyte will, uh, what happens is it will release this hormone called leptin and leptin will be, um, we'll say processed, uh, in the, uh, appetite regulation centers in the brain. And your brain is going to say, oh, okay, she's had enough food here. We should, we can stop eating now. So that's one of the things I would say, one of the big things that I would just want to start off with is to understand that as a woman, we are much more defensive of our fat stores. And this is probably why we are more leptin resistant relative to our male counterparts, right? So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is in our perimenopausal years, we also naturally, as a function of age, become more insulin resistant. So we, you know, your listeners may be more familiar with that term. And that basically just means that your cells are more resistant to the insulin signal, right? When it's released. And the same is true in leptin resistance. So the brain or the appetite regulation centers are more resistant to the leptin signal once you've had enough caloric intake. And of course, what happens is you end up consuming more calories because you need more and more leptin to be secreted in order for that 
signal to kind of get through. So women are also as a function of age, we are more insulin resistant. So there are things that we need, which we'll talk about that can help to improve insulin sensitization. Um, and then the other thing is from, again, coming back to the neuromusculoskeletal system is that we are also more anabolically resistant as well, meaning that our muscles are more resistant to growth as we get older. So that's a function of many things, primarily age. We also see a change in concentration of hormones, usually a change in activity, right? So we, uh, we've all seen toddlers, they can run around you know, for hours and hours, and then they get into school and then they don't run around for as many hours anymore. And then you're 25 and you're working at a job and you do that for 20 or four, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And we're, we're more and more sedentary. And of course, as the old adage goes, you, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So we lose speed, we lose power, we lose strength as we age. And so the muscles and the bone, um, and I would argue also the ligaments and the tendons are going to be more resistant to remodeling themselves um, at, in, with a particular focus for growth um, over time. So there are strategies that I outline in the Betty Body that I talk about on the podcast. One of the big ones, of course, is resistance training, which I'm sure is no surprise to you since you've been <laughs> listening to the show. But that is one of the big ways that we can really overcome not only the insulin resistance, because it, there's been a lot of data to research, to uh, research, I'll say, that has demonstrated that even just one weight training session uh, has been shown to sort of overcome and statistically improve that insulin resistance that sort of sets in. And I'll also say that um, insulin resistance typically sets in the muscles first. So we don't see it in we don't see it systemically. We don't see all of a sudden you wake up one day and all your cells are, you know, they're, they're boycotting your pancreas. It's, it doesn't work that way. It's, it, it starts off as um, a, uh, a resistance in the muscle fibers for taking up um, substrate. So working the muscle fiber, having a mechanical stimulus, like even just going for a walk truly, but, you know, walking is good. Training is better, um, is going to help overcome that. So these are some things that I think all women need to be um, aware of as they age, because we, if we're not careful, uh, you can lose, you know, a percent, uh, like over the course of a decade, you can lose up to 10% of your muscle mass, including strength and all of that. So about a percent a year, if you're not doing anything to either maintain and hopefully by the end of this, um, our time together, I can convince you and your, maybe not you, but your listeners, um, the importance of putting on as much lean muscle mass as possible so that we can age well, because aging is going to happen. We are all going to age. There's of course, things that you can do to maintain energy and maintain usefulness, whether that's aesthetic or that's, you know, physiologically, but I think, and maybe this is a different tangent, which we might have time to go down today or not, but I think coming to terms with aging, I think is also a very important topic that is not being discussed in perimenopause and in the menopausal populations, because losing your cycle or seeing your cycle change in perimenopause is a staunch reminder that things are changing, right? That we are aging and that our time on earth is not finite. And I think that that's something that I never thought about uh, when I was in my 20s, really not even into my 30s. And now that I'm in my 40s, I'm starting to consider my mortality more and more. I'm trying to think about it every single day. And what are the things that I want to do with the time that I have left? And I think that for many people in our society, I think death is something to be avoided. We put old people in homes. We don't want to see it, you know, and I, and I think that um, really embracing 
death as a part of the natural life cycle uh, is, is like, we're all going to the same place. Like we're, no one's getting out of here alive, you know? And I think that accepting <laughs> that, you know, accepting that I think is maybe that's dark and I'm sorry if that's, you know, depressing and, you know, but I, that's, that's something that I think about often. And I think in a way it helps me show up more in my, in the life that I have while I have it. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a bit of a tangent, but I just wanted to throw that in there because it came up for me. It's a great tangent. And I don't know if you're aware, I'm a gerontologist. And so we study a lot of death, dying and grieving. And, and it's an important, definitely an important factor. I think it's a, we all need to be aware of this and we all need to accept it. We all need to not look at it as something to be shoved into the corner and, and hidden away. And this is a big problem because then we have more ageist stereotypes and more problems of ageism. And, and it's, um, it's one of those things that if we're not talking about it, then it'll continue to stay in the box. And I think a woman going through perimenopause and through this menopause transition is having a real hard time with that. Because like you said, you know, when you start losing your periods or you see a gray hair or your first wrinkles, it's a sign that you're getting older. And yet we're, we're not young but we're not old either. So you're really in this in-between and you, you try to hang on to your youth as much as you possibly can. And women will do anything. It's actually a very vulnerable population. We'll spend a ton of money on creams and supplements and things that will reverse time and reverse aging. And I hate the word anti-aging. I hate, you know, this is like all this stuff is, is really not serving us in our society. And we, there's enough research out there showing that societies that have more acceptance of aging and menopause have a better experience through it and have a, a live happier, happier, more fulfilled lives. And they're just generally healthier too. So we want to be in this or change, actually change the paradigm of what is aging. And it's really hard in our society because we're so youth centric. And I'm really glad you went off on a tangent there because it's everything that I love to open up about and uh, and discuss and at least be prepared for. So thank you so much for doing that. You're welcome. I um I re I'll just add on to this and and we can we can move on if you like. But I um I recently bought this calendar. Uh, I think it's a company. I think it's called Four Weeks. Four K Weeks. Four K Weeks. So you you put you put in your birthday, and then you have the option to uh say when you think you're going to die. So I chose eight. You know, at age 88, I think they have age 100 and then 120. And then, so they send you this chart based on your birthday about how many weeks you've already lived and then how many weeks you have left. And so every week at the end of the week, I color in one of these squares. And so, you know, I, I remember when I first posted this on my Instagram, people were like, that's awful. Like, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to see that. And so, and yeah, I mean, in a way it's like, yeah, oh my gosh, I've lived, you know, we're basing it on 80, you know, the age 88. I've lived more than half uh, of my life, but I still have about 50% of it left. So if I spend it just thinking about what was rather than being right here, then I am going to waste that time. And so I do think that while it, it is a little depressing and maybe a little, maybe a little morbid, uh, I, I think it's important. I, I see it every day and I'm, I'm saying, okay, how am I going to make this week a great one? How am I going to make this week a great one? So that at the, on Sunday, when I color it in, you know, so that we move into the next week. Um, I, I can put that week to bed and say, yeah, I, like it was, it was everything that I had. I did everything that I had that I could for this week. When we're faced with death, 
that's when we start living, right? We, if you've had someone who died, or who was close to you, or even during the pandemic when everybody was reevaluating their lives because there's they were you know afraid. And in gerontology, we have this thing called the socio-emotional selectivity theory, and that's when as you age, we have a better understanding that we are closer to death than we are to birth, and then we become more selective of our time. Who do we spend our time with, or what are the things that we do? And it's you know, it's just one of those facts of life. As we age, we really do want to pri- prioritize these things. But it's it's a pity you, you, you this is not done when you're young, when you have this huge timeline. You think I have all the time in the world, unless you've been faced with death because of something that has happened to you, and that also sort of applies to those people. So, really, if yeah, it's a good it's a good conversation to have, and and um and I'm I, I'm glad you 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 brought that up, and I want that link to that calendar. Hey. I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. And one thing I'd like to ask is what have you seen in your practice to be the top three most effective strategies to give a woman more strength and confidence in her body? And like what we said um, previously, one of the tips, just to reiterate what you said from the body composition thing is to eat until you're 80% full. So that was a one really great tip that I think women can take away with. So what are maybe three more effective strategies not just the body composition, but just having that strength and confidence in herself. We've mentioned it before, but I'll say resistance training. And I feel that there are a lot of different, we'll say schools of thought in terms of what resistance training means. Some people use bands, some people use weights, some people uh, use their own body weight, and all of those are fine. I would say that if you're just starting out, using your own body weight is probably the way to go because we want to actually set proper motion patterns. We want full range of motion and we want to be getting the, uh, the motor patterning right from the beginning. So that's the way to go. And then you might transition to, let's say bands, or even if you, if you're a member of a gym, you know, the machines where they're directing the line of force for you. And then over time you might you might, uh, you know, graduate or move on to uh, free weights, so dumbbells and then barbells and then squat racks and things of that nature. The only caveat I would say across all of those different uh, modalities and ways of training is that you are lifting heavy. And what I mean by that is that you are working the muscle close to failure. You don't have to work it to failure, although you know that would that would take quite a bit of time if you're doing just your own body weight. But you want to work it close to failure. So if you let's say said, okay, I'm going to do 10 lunges on the right and 10 lunges on the left. But after rep number 10, you, your muscles weren't quite finished yet. Please feel free to do more. <laughs> you know, like, please feel <laughs> free to work until the muscle is done, right? Or until you start to see your form break, like your form can break a little bit. Uh, but when we start to see the concentric and the eccentric, it's usually the, uh, it's usually the concentric that starts to fail, or even depending on the movement, the eccentric starts to fail. Uh, that's when you're done. And so that would be my number one tip is lift heavy and close to failure. So that is going to be for a lot of women say, Oh, and that's great. You know, that's better than not doing anything. 
But if you are serious about changing the way that your body looks, if we are thinking about body recomposition, certainly driving muscle hypertrophy, one of the things that we do need to do is to work on, we have to work on working the muscle to failure. The other thing I'll say, and this is, again, this is just like my nerdy uh, movement, you know, chiropractic kind of biomechanics background is the other thing that's important is stability. I hear so, and, and I'll say, you know, maybe the fancy word for stability is proprioception. So proprioception or stability is basically our sixth sense. It is our unconscious sense. It's basically, if I were to ask you to close your eyes and make a 90 degree angle with your elbow, you could probably do it without your visual system being able to tell you whether or not you're accurate. And that is we won't get into all the mechanics and the Golgi tendon organs, and we won't get into all of the, the sensors that are helping you do that, but your muscles also act as a sensory organ in this way. So I would say stability and proprioception are also incredibly important, particularly as we age. So at, you know, I'm 45 right now, the goal is to, is to stay in the game, right? It's not to get injured so that I have to take a step back and wait and then potentially, you know, experience muscle um, atrophy and whatnot. And then you fast forward that you do like a 20 year phasic shift. Like when I'm 65 or 75, I don't want to have a fall because my, my stability system, my proprioceptive system, which is like all the joints and the muscles telling my brain where I am in space fail. And then I fall on an outstretched hand. We call that a foosh injury, break your hip, et cetera, et cetera. Because we all know, you know, what happens when you break your hip, we see cognitive decline, the, the mortality from a hip break in an, in an elderly person. I'm, I'm sure that you are very well versed in the, in the data here uh, is abysmal. So we want to be thinking about training both strength and stability. These are very important. Diff- they're similar, but they're both skills that need to be practiced. The ch- I would say eating until you're 80% full. The other one uh, and I used to do this a lot is I would just like inhale my food. So I would see my food <laughs> and I would eat so fast. I would be, you know, if we were out to dinner with friends or even if it was just, I was just out on a date or something, I would be the first person finished. So one of the things that's been very useful for me is first to actually look at my food, right? So mm-hmm. when the food is plated or it's put in front of you, or if you put your food together and you're having dinner, maybe with your family, or even if you've plated it family style, when you get your plate in front of you to actually look, right? Your vision is your dominant sense. So when you are looking at the food, then we are going to start activating what's called the cephalic phase of digestion, which is responsible for about 70% of the pancreatic juices that are secreted in term, in, in anticipation of digestion. So looking at your food, smelling your food, uh, you know, if you can move your fork around a little bit and kind of get a sense of the texture of your food. So really activating essentially the, the senses, the cranial nerves, and then I would say chewing your food. So this is the other, back to the sort of inhaling my food bit. This is the only opportunity in in all of your digestive processes where there's an opportunity for mechanical digestion, meaning the mastication that happens vis-a-vis your your teeth kind of mashing the you know and breaking apart the food so that it turns into a bolus for for chemical digestion in the stomach and the small intestines etc so i would say if you are someone who notices that you finish your food relatively quickly pause before you eat it let your senses be activated look at it touch it smell it feel it that kind of thing and then take your time chewing so a general rule of thumb five times on the right, you know, if you have the food on the right side of your cheek, you chew it five times. 
And then you can, you know, pop it over to the left side and then chew it there uh, for five times. So about 10 times that you're breaking it up and then you can swallow after that. So that has, that has been very useful for many women like myself, who sometimes I would even eat standing up, like just kind of in between calls, or I have to go and get the kids now, and we're going to go to soccer. And I would just, you know, have a protein bar or something silly, like standing up or walking even worse. So I would say, if you can sit down and then look at your food and chew your food properly, because it is the only time that you have in the entire digestive process to mechanically digest your food. Great advice. Mindful eating, right? Being very mindful. I totally get it. And I've been practicing this for a long time, but lately my vision has been not optimized. And I noticed when I looked at my food, I'm like, oh my God, I have to put glasses on or something because I don't want to miss that part. So that kind of gave me a clue as, as a gerontologist saying, oh my gosh, all the people who actually don't see very well, don't hear as well, don't smell as well. Um, not that this happens to everybody and it's, you know, I won't exaggerate, but you know, it can decline and you lose some of that pleasure. And that's why older adults who, who do lose their taste and smell don't eat well. And we have to always focus on their nutrition and, and how to help them actually eat more and eat enough to make sure their food is palatable. And not just porridge, right? Like that's, yeah. <laughs> that's what we end up seeing, right? Is they just eat oatmeal or porridge or something because that's the only thing that they think that they enjoy, but they've stopped eating steak or they've stopped eating vegetables because it no longer, as you, you know, to your point, it's no longer giving them that pleasure anymore because they can't smell it. They can't see it as well. They can't taste it as well. And they may just want to make whatever is easy, fast. It doesn't really matter anyways, or they may oversalt their food or eat High, highly sweetened foods because uh, you know a lot, a lot of things. So we need to, you know, there's that's a whole other can of worms that we can open up. And but this is something we don't really, we never imagine ourselves what I will be like or what you will be like when you're 70 and 80, when you're 90. It's hard to imagine, and we always think, well, we're not, we'll never be like that. Just when we were, when we were 20, is going, oh, 50 is old, and I'll, I can't imagine what it'd be like. Well, now I'm here. But the same thing is, is, but we do need to bring awareness and also remove any fears and, and doomsday and change that narrative of what it means to age. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up. But I also wanted to go back to the strength training. I'm absolutely in total agreement with you. And I've been strength training for a long time and lifting heavy weights. And I get that. I, I understand that. You know, I, I totally understand the, and i try to repeat what you said to, to many of my clients or to the people that you really need. If you want to have the muscle gains, then you have to push yourself a little bit harder. What I've seen through some of my clients and when I tell people to do this, they do feel empowered. Actually, I can lift something pretty heavy or I can do you know a, a chin up or a pull up. And, and that to see the sparkle in, in their eyes to, to, that they've been able to do this, it's very, very empowering. So they feel stronger as well. But my question to you is yesterday I had a podcast interview um, with Stephen Munyatones, who is the CEO of Katsu and Katsu Bands. And I thought this is a fabulous way to build muscle if it works, right? If this is, I'd like to hear your opinion on this because there's some people who cannot or will not lift heavy weights or they don't have access to it or they don't know how. And having these sort of blood flow restriction bands and Katsu is a special one made, you know, anyone, I think they did studies on or a test on a 104 year old person. So it's very safe, but it is actually very, very interesting way to maintain or build muscle as we age. Or if you just got out of surgery or injured and 
all these things can happen and they happen more frequently as we age. Do you know about the katsu bands and, and what is your opinion on that? They're blood flow restriction bands. Is that what they, that's what they are? They are next level. They have this uh, pulsating, they, they fill up with air and for 30 seconds and then they release for five seconds. Whereas blood flow restriction traditional is just you slap the bands on, it's, like a pull tourniquet. Them. it's a glorified tourniquet and, or sometimes they have this pump and that is, there are some contraindications for that. People have heart, um, you know, heart issues and, and things like that cannot, and certainly older adults, you need to ask your doctor. So it's one of those things that you need to be very careful with. Whereas katsu bands have been created in 1966 in, in Japan, and they have been created for people in cardiac rehab by cardiologists in, in, in Japan. And so Stephen has been thought this was actually quite an amazing product and his bringing it to the world. So if you don't know about them, I'll certainly send you a link because I think it could be a really, really great alternative for, for women who are having trouble building muscle or will not or cannot go a little bit harder than they, 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 they want to. Sure. I would love that. Yeah. I haven't heard of them, but blood flow restriction, certainly um, I have. And I think that's also a great tool. You know, we, we haven't really covered hormones, right? And and I would like to hear your opinion on the perimenopausal transition, the loss of hormones, and your thoughts on bioidentical hormone therapy, any, any experience that you've had with your clients and, and what a woman going through, through perimenopause transition should know about it. I think the, the safe thing to say here is that all of our hormones decline <laughs> with age <laughs> uh, naturally. It starts with progesterone. So progesterone somewhere in the mid thirties, um, which is actually where, you know, if you read my book, you'll hear me say that perimenopause actually starts in your thirties. And that's part of the reason why is that we start to see a decline in progesterone at, you know, mid thirties, call it 35. And there's a steady decline thereafter. And so you may not necessarily feel anything in your 30s, although you might, if you're someone who uh, suffers from, call it PMS type of uh, symptoms, like I was describing before. So, you know, in that week or two before the onset of your period, you may feel like you retain a lot of water. You may feel very sensitive. You may feel very inflamed. In the book, I describe my breasts felt like they were angry at me. So like any, you know, wearing a bra or any type of shirt was always quite uncomfortable for me in, um, in that fourth week. I always preferred to go braless uh, any time that I could, you know, hashtag free the nip, right? So it was, you know, all, <laughs> uh, but, but it was more not, you know, it wasn't like a political statement. It was, I am so uncomfortable with this restrictive bra that I want, wanted to go braless. And then I would say like the mood changes, the irritability, you know, I've seen memes online that say, you know, I thought my, you know, you know, it's me on my way to apologizing to my fiance that in fact, his chewing wasn't the problem. It was, I was about to get my period, you know, so <laughs> we get, we're just like excruciatingly sensitive to stimulus, right? So it could be the boyfriend chewing, it could be music, uh, it could be a television show, all of these things. It's um, if you're someone who experiences any kind of PMS, that might be an indication, might, you need to test to confirm, but that might be a clinical indication that there is some imbalance between progesterone and estrogen in the second half of your cycle. So it might not mean, at, maybe in your early 30s, maybe it's not so much that you have low progesterone, but you have too much estrogen relative to the progesterone that you're producing, which is causing some of these, we'll call it e estrogen excess or progesterone deficiency. They actually have the same uh, uh, clinical uh, presentation. 
So as we progress in our thirties into our forties, now we also see estrogen starts to decline as well. So now we have low progesterone and we have a lower estrogen environment. And then, and testosterone is also coming down as well. And testosterone is actually not often talked about in women's health and in women's medicine, because it's often, you know, phenotypically ascribed as the male hormone. This is like the, it's famous for libido. It's famous for muscle mass. And I talk about this in the book. I've talked about this on the show as well. This is the most abundant sex hormone that women have in the body. We have the most testosterone. We have more testosterone than we have estrogen. And so changes in muscle mass, certainly if you're not training, uh, you will see a loss of muscle mass. But the more subtle signs, we'll say, of lowering testosterone, well, well, actually, we'll just talk about the gynecological ones because they're more obvious, uh, vaginal dryness, maybe less sensitivity in the clitoris, more difficulty achieving orgasm, uh, longer time or poor lubrication, right? So, you know, you're maybe you're with your partner or you're with yourself, you know, you're not as maybe wet as you, uh, as you have been in the past. So those are kind of some signs of changing levels of testosterone, but more subtle signs. And this is what I also like to ask, um, patients about is confidence, right? So you asked, I think you asked earlier about how we can help our women feel good in their bodies. Testosterone is the confidence hormone, right? So it makes us feel good. It makes us feel strong. It makes us take risks. It helps us be sharp in the meeting, right? Sometimes women will say, I'm just, I'm like brain fog all day long. So those are also some maybe more subtle signs that you're having some changes in your hormonal composition. Now there of course are some levers, which we've already discussed that can help with that. Certainly resistance training is going to up. Actually resistance training tends to actually balance out progesterone and estrogen. Uh, And certainly in your later years, um, there is, uh, we'll call it um, estrogen when we're training in the reparative process of the muscles, we can enhance estrogen receptor expression and sensitivity. Same thing with growth hormone receptor sensitivity. We'll say like in layman's terms, you know, growth hormone, which is an important hormone that also declines, uh, works better in the presence of estrogen. So as we're training, uh, estrogen is an anabolic hormone, as is testosterone. The more muscle that you have, you have these gene transcription factors that happen after uh, we train, we have all this sort of metabolic and uh, sort of physiological consequences of training that will upregulate receptor expression. So I would say, I mean, that's sort of a back of the envelope, five minute uh, explanation of hormones. Mm-hmm. I could, we certainly would require maybe a, a several days to sort of go through each of them um, and g- give each their due diligence, but that's sort of the very high level basics of what's happening. And when we are thinking about how we might coordinate a changing hormonal environment with some of the levers that are available to us, of course, sleep is very important, uh, making sure that we're sleeping, which a lot of perimenopausal women will complain about. They'll say, I don't know, I just woke up one day and I just can't sleep, <laughs> right? So we have to think about stress management. There may be some supplements that we might be think, think about taking in the evening. I, we were just talking before we got started about this perimenopausal masterclass, part one and part two that I just did on the show on, on my podcast, which maybe if your listeners feel so inclined, they might you know pop over and listen to um, that show as well. But we talk about supplements like ashwagandha and rhodiola rosacea and vitex. And we talk about phosphatidylserine and all of these different 
um, supplements that can help with sleep, even melatonin. Uh, I've had a couple of uh, sleep uh, experts on the show talking about how our chronotype actually changes in our late 40s and 50s again. So whereas we may have been, call it like a night owl, naturally a night owl uh, when we were in our teens, and then we sort of shift into what is our like natural chronotype, call it around age 25. And then around age 50, again, it shifts. So you'll, and a lot of, uh, you may also see this as well in your practice, but we see the older you get, it seems the less you sleep. So that can also have physiological consequences on partitioning a fuel on our ability to control our emotions on our hormonal concentrations, all the things. So we can think about changing sleep. We can think about um, changing the, we'll call it nutrition of the diet. So I often like to start off for a lot of women in a lower carbohydrate environment temporarily, as we're trying to improve insulin sensitivity, and then we move them back into sort of all the carbs, right? I, I don't think that there's any one macronutrient that is inherently bad for you. As I think sometimes you can see in the online space, people are like fat is bad or fat is great or carbs are bad or carbs are great. You know, protein is too much protein was going to give you kidney. It's going to give you cancer. Oh no, you need a lot of protein to build muscle. Like I can understand the confusion because we hear from so many different people. Carbs are good. Carbs are bad. Protein's good. Protein's bad. Fat is good. Fat is bad. So I think that they're neither inherently good or bad, but we do have to think about the health of the individual right now and what the what the manipulation or what the intervention is going to be for that person where they are now and then achieve the result maybe the metabolic result that we're looking for and then change the diet again the same is true for fitness you wouldn't just go to the gym one day and run on the treadmill and say like i've done it i'm fit right? <laughs> like your your goals are going to change right over time like maybe it's to run a marathon maybe it's to put on muscle you know, whatever it is. So your goals are going to change with time as is your programming. Your programming is going to change with time. As you get stronger, you're going to need more sets, more volume. You're going to need to change the order of things. You're going to need to change tempo, like all the different things that the, the you know, variables that you can change uh, in, a, in a program. So I tried to cover as much as I could there. So I don't know how well I did, but um, I, I would say that that's sort of the hormones 101. We'll say it that way. You did cover a lot. Definitely, you're, you, you got definitely jam packed. But I would reiterate to please everyone else go to your podcast. The it's the latest ones, um, the masterclass on perimenopause because you do take a thorough deep dive. You had to make a part one and a part two because it's so long. But um, it really, I think, is helpful. And then, of course, the Betty Body book with, has all the even more details in there. But I um, I appreciate uh, everything that you said just now and. And it reminds me, you know, when you, you talked about protein and, you know, is it, is it good? Is it bad? It reminded me of my, my class with Dr. Walter Longo because he was one of my professors and we were all afraid of, of protein at the end of the class. And like, and everybody wanted to touch it. My whole protein came down, but it's again, you know, where, you know, it was just information we, I had every single day, but I agree with you. It's everyone's different and we need to just find that balance and figure out what is good for us and what is bad. And, and, and it can be, you know, we're all bio-individuals. So, so thank you for, for bringing that all up. But I kind of was leaning into the question because we had one question here. Also, one of our listeners said um, she's very struggling with hot flashes. Where, where do you stand and what would you recommend a woman who is going through menopause and really having trouble with hot flashes? What, what can she do? I mean, assuming, you know, she, I think what I hear a lot from you on your podcast and what you're saying is there's these foundations, right? I think, and I completely agree with you. You got to get the sleep right, the exercise, the, the nutrition. This is all very, very important. 
for the hot flashes and just your well-being and 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 to be able to age in a long and, and in a good condition. So, are there any other things that you would recommend for for someone going having hot flashes? Yeah, assuming as you mentioned, assuming that all of the foundations are in place. So she's managing her sleep, she's managing her stress, she has her nutrition dialed in, her fitness dialed in. She's part of a community that she loves. And she's experiencing, we'll say, joy breaks or multiple, you know, points during the day where she's where she's happy and joyful. And she's not drinking alcohol. So that's another really big thing that can trigger a lot of hot flashes in uh, in women as well. Uh, I would say you might explore hormone replacement therapy. I would say bioidenticals certainly would be the place I would start. And then if those are not if those are not doing it, then you might consider synthetic hormones. But always the I would say always the hormones that are closest to your own body first. So natural progesterone is, is distinct from progestin, which is uh, a synthetic hormone. I have worked with patients who, where we've done bioidenticals together, who have, we, we've worked first to establish the sort of foundations that we were, that we were talking about and mastery of that. And then still experiencing some of the symptoms that um, this uh, individual is talking about, still getting the hot flashes, very disruptive. And the bioidenticals really do seem to be I, I've, I've never, I've, I'll say that I've never had a woman who's had all of those foundations in place and her bio and, and using bioidenticals need to move on to synthetics. It usually kind of captures it. So big fan of bioidenticals. Um, I personally haven't started them yet, but I am watching my uh, levels with my progesterone levels in particular with, uh, with a vested interest because I'm very open to that and very, um, and will be very candid when that, when that when that starts for me, but I don't, at this point, I don't experience, you know, hot flashes and sleep disturbances. I mean, there's, you know, I have children, so I have their natural sleep disturbers. So I, you know, they'll sometimes have a night, <laughs> nightmare or something and come into my room, but I'm not waking up consistently, let, consistently, let, let's say at two o'clock in the morning, but uh, for this individual, uh, certainly working with her primary healthcare provider or functional medicine provider, let's say who has some experience with bioidenticals would be something that she should explore. Yeah. And in your, in your podcast too, you mentioned there's always this question, if I don't have the symptoms, should I still be looking at it for preventative measures? And if I, if I think I, I understood correctly, you would treat the symptoms, but, um, but not if, if you don't have symptoms, then you would see no reason to, to be on it. Is that correct? Because the one thing you do have to keep in mind is when you are introducing an exogenous substrate, like, like a, a bioidentical hormone, it is a hormone. There are feedback loops that your brain is going to detect there are elevated levels. So you yourself are now going to downregulate your own natural production of it. So I, I'd like to start off with if, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like if you're not experiencing any clinical, if you're not experiencing sleep disturbances, mood, the breast tenderness, the 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 wonkiness through the cycle, there would be, at least I would think that there's there's not a justification yet for the use of, of bioidenticals. If someone is coming in and saying, listen, like I have libido, sex is really painful, uh, hard for me to reach orgasm. You know, my, I have to walk around without a shirt on, you know, a week before my period, I'm moody, I'm emotional. And my periods are very heavy and very cloddy and they they're fast and fury, all of that. Then I would say, yeah, absolutely. We should be looking first. We need to be looking at what your lifestyle is, like how the genes are living, what the epigenetics are, what is the, the nutrition and the exercise and the stress management and the sleep what sun, what's your sunlight exposure look like? All of those things. And then we can look at if, if the symptoms are still persisting and they're still making a marked 
uh, impact on this individual's life, then absolutely we want to be looking at um, uh, further intervention because at least I would say my my clinical uh, sort of observation, if you will, has been that you know, the lifestyle piece fixes about 85 to 90% of it. And then you need the bioidenticals, let's say on top for the, for the last 10. What about someone who, who has no symptoms, but the Dutch test or other testing show that all the hormones are kind of shot and gone, but they don't have symptoms? Well, I think it depends on, on the goal of the, of the individual. So first we want to be having a conversation about why she would be considering bioidenticals. If she's feeling fine, she's still able to do all of her activities of daily living. She's not having any sleep disturbances. Like I, I would, I would want to understand what her motivation is, let's say, but I would be more inclined, we'll say to steer her into more of her lifestyle, like do more of what's working. If her hormones are very low, then certainly you can, you know, if she's starting to experience some of the fallout from that, like hair thinning or the sensitivity that we were talking about and the inflammation, then certainly we can, we can talk about it. But I think once you introduce it, you have to know that you're kind of in it now, like you can't really stop. And that, and I mentioned that there's that sort of feedback loop where your own hormones now are going to go in the tank. So I think it really depends on the goal of the individual. And I would be probably more inclined to help her achieve mastery in some of the other levers that we've been talking about rather than going jumping to bioidentical. Mm. So treat the symptoms, not the data in that sense. We're not ignoring the data, but sometimes there's a, there's a huge variance in terms of what constitutes normal. So those, those numbers might be normal for her, right? So there's, um, it's not necessarily that we're only looking at clinical, we need to, you know, when we're thinking about evidence-based practices, we need to be looking at one, what are the goals of the patient? Like what are the goals of the individual? The second, of course, is the, the evidence that's available in the literature. What does the literature tell us? And then the third is, of course, the, the clinical expertise of, of the practitioner. So you sort of have this like overlapping, we'll say, Venn diagram of what evidence-based is. And sometimes we'll see um, online space and, and elsewhere in, in physical practice, the only thing that matters is either what's in the literature, or sometimes you'll have the only thing that matters is what the clinician thinks. And it's actually all of those things. It's what the, uh, the clinical expertise that the, that the practitioner can say, hey, I've been practicing for X amount of years, these are some of the patterns that I see. And having that that conversation with the patient, it's understanding what her goals are. Like that patient, that female should feel safe to be able to express what her goals are to her healthcare provider. And then you have this, this third sort of circle, if you will, uh, where it's what is what does the literature tell us? What are the studies on women telling us? And of course, there's, I would argue that there's very much a lack of female specific literature. It's getting better, but it's not quite where it needs to be. But we need to be able to parse all of those three circles and sort of the in like the the area where all three of those intersect is how you're going to make your decision together with that patient in terms of what's best for her. Like I could say to someone, hey, I don't think you need it. And they might say, but I want it. Like, all right, then that's what we're going to do. <laughs> you know, like that's, you know, I, I'm not the, um, I don't like to look at myself as the, as the, as the last word, like I'm always going to provide my input in terms of what I see in terms of what my clinical expertise and my experience is. But at the end of the day, it's the patient. The patient is the person who should be able to decide. And I believe what I'm describing here is, is informed consent, right? So it's yeah. like the patient is given all of the variables, the good, the bad, the ugly. And then they make the decision that is best for them, for, you know, for, the, for where they are in their life and what they want. Makes perfect sense. 
So, okay, I know you have to go. <laughs> we wrapped up, but there's a, a lab cheat sheet that every woman should have that you mentioned before. What, what is that? Oh, yeah. So this is something I actually created for uh, the clinicians that I train. Um, because again, one of the things that uh, became very apparent to me early on is, is many clinicians don't know when to test and how to test uh, hormones. And then even the lab will say results can vary widely from lab to lab to lab based on location, based on where you are in the world, et cetera. So I have taken all the labs that I think that every female patient should have in her arsenal. And quite frankly, any practitioner who is treating female patients in particularly in perimenopause uh, and have gone through thyroid panels, appropriate lipid panels, sex hormone, when to test them, because you can't just walk in and test estrogen on day nine. You're not going to get an accurate reading. You want to look at there's certain, there's other hormones we haven't discussed. Uh, you want to test them on day, you know, two day one or two of your cycle, let's say. So there's, there's different times of the cycle where we can get a really good clinical picture of what's going on. Thyroid, for example, you should never take, you know, you should always get it done in the morning, let's say as early, like when the lab opens, that's when you should be there. Don't get it done in the afternoon after work, you're going to get a skewed result. So there's, um, there's certain times. And then we also have optimized lab, like optimized ranges in there. Like what is a good uh, amount for a woman uh, in many cases over the arc of her, uh, of her life. So of course we know estrogen and progesterone and um, IGF-1, all of these, all of these um, hormones change with time. So we have that in there. I'll, you'll have the link in the show notes and people can go and just download that um, for them for themselves. And they can have a conversation with their primary healthcare provider. Should they want to do a deeper dive into some of their uh, other markers, maybe that they, that they haven't looked at. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you to offer that. And I get this question a lot too, to, from some of my clients who just say, which lab should I get? And so it's, it's going to be very, very useful for me as well. So everyone can find you on your website, hellobetty.club. You're also on Instagram, Dr. Stephanie, Dr. Stephanie.estima and YouTube, and you have the podcast, The Better Podcast with Dr. Stephanie. And I will have links to all of these in the show notes. Is there any last words that you'd like to say for a woman going through menopause? I would say that it is a, it's not a disease. Uh, as, as, as much as I would say, sometimes we like to medicalize everything and make everything into a, an ICD code. I would say that, um, it's not, it's not a disease. It's a normal process and you can absolutely go through it with grace and ease and joy, um, in the way that you were designed. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I still have a million questions, but hopefully we'll have a, a part two. Have a wonderful day and um, and good night, good morning, good, good good evening to everyone else who's who's listening. Take care. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.